You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. We're committed to sparking important conversations about money and inspiring you to always be in the financial front seat. Learn more at fidelity.com slash front seat. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hey, everybody, it's Jean Chatsky, and this week we are talking about ambition. So I want to start by asking you some questions. What exactly is success? Is it climbing to the top of the ladder? Is it climbing to the top of your career while also being married or also having children? Is it Climbing to the midway point in your career and then saying, screw it, this is not what I wanted to do all along and pivoting to something that makes you truly happy? I didn't write these questions. Full confession. They come from this week's guests, Hannah Shank and Elizabeth Wallace, Liz. Back in 2016, they published a series of essays in The Atlantic called The Ambition Interviews, which focused on women and ambition and the realities of work-life balance and motherhood and what counts, quote-unquote, as ambition and success. And their work went viral. Kudos to them for that. And now, two years later, they have turned this series into a book. It's called The Ambition Decisions, What Women Know About Work, Family, and the Path to Building a Life. Hannah and Liz, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. So congratulations on the book. We walked into the studio And Liz was all excited because you were just excerpted again in the Atlantic. So congratulations. Thank you so much for being here. I want to go back to before the original essays. So back a couple of years, what was happening in your lives that made you want to look at the question of a woman's ambition, specifically in the years after college. And Hannah, let me start with you. Yeah, so this whole project really came out of a joint midlife crisis, um, like many great things. Um, We were both at a point in our careers and in our marriages and in our parenting where we just felt like we were stuck. We felt like there was more that we could be doing. We felt like we weren't doing a great job on the stuff that we were doing. Um, We felt like in our careers, we'd kind of like been treading water for a while and just started, we were friends from college and just started talking about like, why is this so hard? Why does this feel so difficult? So where were you at that point? What, What exactly were you doing? And then Liz, tell me what you were doing at that point. Yeah, so I was running a technology consultancy, which sounds very fancy, but um, it was a virtual company. So it was basically like me working from home with bringing on freelancers, um, doing digital strategy. Um, And when I first started doing it, I had one very small baby, and it was a great job because I could set my own hours and I could, you know, take off work at one o'clock and spend an afternoon with him and then go back to work. Um, But at that point, I'd been doing it for 10 years. And I just started to feel like I'm doing the same work that I was doing 10 years ago. I'm taking on the same kinds of clients. And what was important to me when I started this was that I wanted to have flexibility. But now I'm kind of like 
a piece of my brain has turned back on and I am ready for more of an intellectual challenge. And I just was not getting it from work. Were you at the same place? I was at a slightly different place. I had left my last full-time job in print magazines as an editor in 2010. The magazine industry was collapsing, as you know, and I had gone freelance and had had some some good sort of permalance jobs over three years' time, but basically had made a decision to scale back and go part-time at the last permalance job that I had. And then I sort of decided even that was I wanted to stop going into Midtown every day for a little while. And I also had a one-year-old and a three-year-old at home. And so I basically cut the cord on childcare, and I decided I was only going to have a career during the hours my children were in school, and I was going to start picking them up from school every day. And I was spending a lot more time with them, which was very rewarding, but also I felt really ambivalent about it. And I missed my job Mm -hmm. in the shiny Midtown Tower where I used to work, and I missed bringing home a salary that I really enjoyed and felt proud of. And I missed having colleagues and and being in an office, but I also really enjoyed the freedom and the time with my children. So I was, I really was thinking like, how is this all supposed to work? Like, am I done? Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, I'm listening to you and I'm about, I think, 10 or 15 years ahead of you guys on my kids' schedule. My children, one is 20 and is in her last year of college. One's 23 and he's out of school. But I remember those feelings about, well, am I supposed to want to stay home more than I actually do? Because that that was never going to do it for me. You know, and and it it was a real feeling of I should, but I'm ambivalent. So how did you take these feelings and turn them into a project? So the um, and I just want to say that part of my struggle with my company was figuring out how to hit like the right number of hours with my kids. Like I don't, you know, I would increase the amount of time that I had childcare and then I would decrease it. And it was like trying to find that perfect sweet spot of like how much children is the right amount versus how much working is the right amount. And it's so individual. Yeah. It's so, I mean, I know for me that if I wasn't feeling productive at work, I was really frustrated at home. Yeah. And I have friends for whom the complete opposite was the case, that where they couldn't go to work without feeling such unbelievable guilt at leaving these children at home that work became the pain point for them. So, you know, I I think it depends on you and, of course, your economic need, but also what drives you. Yeah. Well, and also it is different for every person, and it varies for every person. Like what might work one week might not at all be what I needed the next week. Yeah. So so to answer your question, we um, so we were having these conversations around like having a midlife crisis. Yep. How about you? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, and because we were friends from college, we started wondering like whatever happened to all those people that we went to school with who were so ambitious and seemed like they were going to take over the world and like surely one of them, if not all of them, have all of this figured out. And it's just us who cannot get it going. So we decided to start emailing some of our friends who at that point we hadn't been in touch with for like 20 years um, and find out how they were doing. You went to Northwestern, both of you. You were both in Medill journalism? I was in Medill. And yeah, I was oh. a political science major. Okay. And you graduated in? 
1993, yeah. Okay, just to put this into context, because what is so interesting about this is that it comes about 10 years, 15 years after Lisa Belkin wrote The Opt-Out Revolution, where she basically, it was a New York Times Magazine piece, but she went to her college classmates from Princeton and found that many of them had opted out of the workforce. You found a a very different um, landscape as you looked at it, but... uh, what what did you find? So as you dug into these classmates, these forty three classmates of yours, what what were the what were the overall big ideas that emanated from that? Well, the first the first thing that we found was in interviewing these forty three women was that we saw that they all, for the most part, fell into one of three paths. The first one was the traditional, quote-unquote, high achiever, which was somebody who had a prominent career, big job, C-suite level, high salary, proud internal pride at their own job and their accomplishments. The second group was a group that we we named for that Lisa Belkin piece and the consequent book, The Opt-Outers, women who had had a career and after their first or subsequent child opted out of that career, either temporarily or longer term. And then the least expected and most surprising third group for us was one that we had not seen identified nor really articulated or named before that we both fell into, which we named the flex lifers, which were women who, many of whom had full-time 40 or 50-hour-week jobs, some who'd scaled back their jobs to part-time or working from home, but who had crafted their work lives with some flexibility so that they could still be very present in other aspects of their lives for example, parenting, hobbies, volunteer work, um, and that really the defining factor of their lives was that they valued flexibility in their careers more than they valued ascension. And what was surprising to me was that you just said that group emerged as a bit of a surprise, and yet you were both in it. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and we and we really, you know, like Hannah said, when we first started interviewing these women, we really kind of did think, oh, maybe one of our friends is going to be the superstar, and we don't even know it. We haven't found her on LinkedIn yet, yet or something, and she's going to be somebody who's going to explain it all to us, and we can kind of get ourselves back on track, when in fact— what we found was that some women had different paths than us, some other women had other different paths, and then some had really pretty similar paths that really resonated for us and kind of made us feel like, oh, actually, it's okay what we're doing. Right. I mean, I think that part of why we started this was because we felt like we we were the ones who had, like, veered off track. And then when we discovered, actually, <laughs> a lot of other people are doing exactly what we're doing, that maybe it's not an accident and maybe it's not that, like, we failed at something and therefore we're in this track, but maybe we actually purposely chose it. I'm listening to this and I'm thinking, I think I'm a flex lifer or a life flexer, flex life, flex Flex lifer, flex lifer. I think I'm a flex lifer because when I had my first child, I sort of took myself off the editor track and made sure I was on the writer track because writers could work from home while editors couldn't work from home and worked from home a few days a week. So although I wanted to work, I also wanted to be there. And have been largely flexible my whole career, although now I'm working harder than ever, so go figure. <laughs> which really, which actually underscores something that we write about in the last chapter and that uh, was one of our other big takeaways from this book was that while, while all of our subjects fell into one of these three paths, they also, most of them fluctuated across paths, excuse me, 
throughout their career and some even across the three years of time that we interviewed them. Um, and so we found a lot of women um, in their 40s who had either been stay-at-home moms or flex lifers decided now that their children are a little bit older that they're actually totally going to go back and try to grab the brass ring in new ways, mm-hmm. um, sort of what you're saying and, and kind of what I think both of us are sort of veering toward that. With with some some internalized conflict some days, but, yeah. <laughs> yeah, always always yeah. a little bit of conflict. You dug into the finances as well of these women in their various stages. I want to talk about that, but before we do it, I want to remind everybody that her money and important conversations like this one is brought to you by Fidelity Investments because together we want to inspire all women to be in the financial front seat. That means knowing what you own, what you owe how to reach your goals, and having a financial checkup at least annually. But it also means having a sense of where you are and where you want to go in the trajectory of your work life so that you can make all of these financial goals possible. From understanding the basics of market volatility and risk to creating an investing plan, Fidelity can help, and you can learn more at fidelity.com slash front seat. I am happy to be talking with Hannah and Liz, authors of The Ambition Decisions. Any financial surprises along the way? Many, actually. So we did not go into this thinking we were going to talk about finances or money. Um, And in fact, one of the things that we discovered is that women don't like to talk about finances and money. Go figure. Yeah. (laughs) It was kind of a meta discovery in that way, actually. It was not in the the initial proposal. Yeah. No, not at all. And we kind of had a light bulb moment after interviewing all these women. We were like, well, we obviously have to talk about economics, but what are we going to say? And then it kind of sort of unraveled as we poked at each other. Well, why do you think that is? I mean, as you dug into and poked the beast, why do we not want to talk about this? Um, Well, so what we found was that in our research is that women are really raised to not, you know, we are a lot of research talks about how women are pleasers um, and we like to make people feel comfortable. Um, Money is not a subject that makes people feel comfortable. So that was one thing that came out is that, um, especially women of our generation, are just not raised to be thinking about money and talking about it. Um, One thing that struck us that um, we talk about a couple times in the book is the degree to which our friends, even our most feminist friends who wanted to, who you know, came out of college knowing that they were going to support themselves and um, being very driven to, like, be the primary earner or the sole earner or whatever it was going to be, they were going to be in charge of their financial lives, also looked forward to getting married so they could hand the finances off to their husband. Wow. Um, and that came up time and again. We had friends who said things like, you know, I'm just not interested in money. I'm just not interested in I don't really care about it. And this one friend in particular who is a lawyer and is in a very egalitarian marriage to the degree that she made a list for her husband of all of the things that she does and sat down and divided up what the household responsibilities were when it came time to the finances, wanted him to do the finances. So it's just so ingrained that men do the money. Was it different among the three groups of women, the high achievers and the opt-outers and the flexors? Was Did you find that one or more of those groups was more willing to dive in? I think so, yes. All of the opt-outers were financially supported by their spouses who were not all 
high achievers necessarily, but but earned enough that they could support a family on one salary. That group had, I think, different feelings about being supported by a spouse, but they all were willing to be supported by a spouse, of course. The high achievers, I think, for the most part, prioritized making their own money. And many, if not most of them, were actually the primary or higher earner in their family. And it was their responsibility to support the family. So they really didn't have a choice. But they also got the validation from having these high-achieving jobs. But did they also not want to deal with it? I think that for the high I was thinking about this on the way here. I think that the high achievers, it was an even split. Like they wasn't like the women who were the primary wage earners for the most part didn't cede financial responsibility to their husbands. And in part, a lot of the high achievers are in finance. And so I think that they also felt like this is a thing that they were good at. And so either they did it or they shared it. I think most of them said they shared it with their spouse. But where we really saw the interesting breakdown was with the flex lifers who, you know, we had one friend who said, her husband wasn't who who did the finances. Um, she wanted her husband to take them over, but she said, "Well, he's an English major, and he couldn't possibly do it." Hey, I'm an English major. Well, so was she. <laughs> so, um, and then she and then she went on to say she's been doing the finances for 15 years that they've been married, and it would take a full day of continuing education to transition over her institutional <laughs> knowledge about their finances to him, and it just wasn't worth it. Right. Um, so I think we did see some diversity of opinion there. Yes. But I will also say, in my own life, I was thinking about this on the train ride over here. You had a lot of thoughts on the train I, ride. I, I, trains are good for thinking. <laughs> that I also thought a lot about when I got married, I would my husband would handle the finances. And even though we've been together for 15 years now, um, and we kind of, like, I did it for a while, and then he did it, and now we sort of share it jointly. Um, but there's still a part of me that really wants him to do it to the degree that we got um, offered like free magazine subscriptions a few years ago and I signed up for Money Magazine because I thought he would read it. (laughs) 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 And he doesn't read it. I read it. (laughs) That is hilarious. It is. It's it's funny, but it's good that somebody is still signing up for Money Magazine. It is. (laughs) It is. As as a former money employee, that just warms my heart. (laughs) Um, The book is called The Ambition Decisions. I want to get you to weigh in on some of the decisions because the book can help us, based on your research, make some of these really, really important life decisions. So your advice on choosing a life partner. Well, we found that in our group that our highest achievers were women who had chosen either inadvertently or very purposefully, who had chosen partners who valued their, our friends' careers equally to or higher than their own. And that is to say that those men, and in some cases women, but mostly men, agreed to be flex lifers themselves or and or stay-at-home fathers, stay-at-home spouses, in order to give their partners the, the thing that they really needed to to excel in their careers, which is time to be at work. In fact, you suggest there might be an ambition cap on marriages. You want to explain that? Yeah, so this was something that we discovered in when we did kind of a side-by-side breakdown of who was married to whom. So we went into this expecting to find a lot of power couples, and we found very few. And so we were looking for what's the explanation for that. And when we looked at who 
flex lifers and uh, were married to and who our high achievers were married to. The high achievers tended to be married to either men who opted to stay at home or flex lifers. And the flex lifers seemed to typically be married to each other um, or occasionally a high achiever would be married to a flex lifer. But it was kind of like people had come to this decision without ever discussing it with each other that there was only so much ambition that their marriage could sustain and that it would be allocated in different ways to different partners and not always the same breakdown, not always by gender lines and not always um, broken down in the same way over the course of a marriage. Fascinating. Really, really interesting. Okay, a couple more decisions. Planning to get pregnant, how do you time that based on your research? We actually don't really cover that um, in the book that much. But what we did find out through people talking about it was that women who became high achievers, some started having children in their late 20s and went on maternity leave and went straight back to work and kept on high achieving. And others maybe waited until they were 42, 43, and decided they had waited that long. They had had they had really good careers. They now wanted to take a break and become opt-outers in their 40s with the intention of maybe going back, you know, when their kids were a little bit older. And then kind of a, a lot of decisions in between. Really, really we found that people – People didn't, in this group, didn't really decide when to get pregnant around their careers. They sort of tried and struggled with fertility issues or tried and got pregnant or didn't have children. Um, We did find that most of the women who chose not to have children and chose instead to focus on their careers did all become high achievers. Did you find there was a measured decision-making process around promotions and trying to climb the ladder or versus opting for more flex time? You know, it's interesting. I think we went into this expecting that we would find some correlation between when women had kids and their career trajectories, and we really didn't find it. It seemed like people who were career-focused continue to be career-focused if they had a kid at 30 or if they had a kid at 40. And sort of the same, there wasn't any, like, if you have your baby at 32, you're protected against wanting to opt out. You know, opting out could happen at any moment to anybody um, based on a lot of other factors that we found. How has, last question, how has this project changed your own trajectories? Well, I think I'll speak for myself, but when we... When we started this and we started identifying the three paths, I strongly identified as a flex lifer. I mean, I actually cut my own child care. I got rid of my nanny so that I could save on that save on that cost annually and also be more present with my children, which is not a decision I regret, but I have been thinking about what I want to do next and how I want to continue being a flex lifer, but how I really how I really have recognized my own ambition in areas outside of career, but also inside career and how I really how I really do see that there's there's things that I want to do in my still in my mid to late forties that I really kinda of wanna hit the accelerator on. Mm-hmm. Is that how you say that? Yeah. Um and I I was pretty affected by this project. I really um, you know, as I said at the beginning, felt very stuck and felt very like I don't know how to move things forward. And 
in the course of identifying these high achievers and interviewing them, I was really envious of how self-confident they felt and how secure they felt with their decisions and just how they kind of radiated this, I don't know, shiny level of success, I guess. And so I actually ended up in the middle of this project applying for a job that I didn't think I was going to get, but I did get working at um, the United States Digital Service under the previous administration. And I took a job in a different city and commuted for a year um, so that I could have this kind of like reset my career trajectory. So this project had a huge impact on that. Well, it's fascinating. And I'm really, really happy to have this discussion because I think it's such an important one. Hannah Shank, Liz Wallace, the book is The Ambition Decisions. And thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Sure. And we'll be right back. Our producer, Kelly Hultgren, is with me in the studio. So as somebody who is a decade younger Mm -hmm. than um, Liz and Hannah and two decades younger than me, what do you think? It all really hits close to home for me. So categorizing myself right now, I'm definitely a high achiever. Do you agree? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So what has me interested, though, is assessing my relationships with this ambition cap. Mm -hmm. And because that's the start of everything. So the opening questions we had was, you know, how do we define success? I mean, that question I've been mulling on since we started researching for this show. And for me, my, my definition right now is creating an impact that fulfills me and makes me happy. I think that's a great definition. That's my definition right now, but I think that definition is subject to change. Absolutely. So then that's the first question, but then it gets more loaded when we start wondering, like, will I be able to have that success with a family? Will I have the emotional bandwidth? Will I or can I give that amount of energy to another person to have a relationship with and then have a family maybe? Like, it's there's so many things I don't know yet. I haven't got to the place where... I've wanted to carve out what it takes to do that with someone. So I'm questioning whether or not right now is that doable for me. Right. Yeah. No, it is. (laughs) It's heavy. And I think, I mean, for me, it was always not being ready to carve it out until I was ready to carve it out. And then I was really ready to carve it out. Do you feel it? Yes. Is it more of like it's a feeling, like you can't think it through so much? It's a feeling that then spurs the, okay, how do I figure this out? Yeah, I I think that's right. Sometimes bad movie scenes hit me in the (laughs) middle of important conversations. And right now I am flashing on one that I know is in your roster. But do you remember the scene at the end of Freaky Friday with Jamie Lee Curtis Mm -hmm. and Lindsay Lohan? And Lindsay Lohan, in her many permutations, has been giving Mark Harmon, Jamie Lee Curtis's fiancé, a really hard time for the entire two hours of this movie Mm -hmm. and comes around to the thinking that he's a really good guy and her mother is really happy when she's with him. And she says, and when it's somebody as great as this, we'll all just make a little room. Mm. And I think that's kind of how life has worked. At least that's how it's worked for me. When it's something worth making room for, you make room. Mm. It's back to Samantha Edis and your pie. And you carve your pie in different ways based on where you are in your life at different moments. 
So that's what I'm thinking about. Okay, that's good. <laughs> Let me just remind everybody. So Kelly and I have both been so thrilled with our private Facebook group at this point. We have not been around that long, but we are gaining tons of members mm-hmm. and really fantastic engagement. Yes. I mean, I've been in there pretty much every day talking to people, just mm-hmm. commenting on what they're talking about. I'm really interested in their conversations. This is very quickly becoming a place that if you want to talk to the other like-minded women who are listening to this podcast, this is a forum for you to do it. And mm-hmm. so I just, I'm so excited by Me this. Me too. And back to the interview when they said, we found out women don't like to talk about money. That's not true anymore. So, but even if you're not at the place of where you want to talk about it, but you want to see how other women are approaching the conversation or what other women are thinking about and how these conversations are organically happening, come to the group. Find us on Facebook. You don't have to interact. You can just read. You can lurk. You can lurk. You You can stalk us. Totally open to you stalking us. That's my favorite thing to push back on nowadays is when people say, like, well, people just don't like talking about money. Women don't like talking about money. That's not true. Our women like talking about money. Our women like talking about money. (laughs) All right. We've got a couple of questions. Speaking of which, yes. Our first question is from Danielle, who says she loves the podcast because it's helped her and her husband transition from graduate students to working professionals. She writes, my question is in regard to the percent of income that should be saved by individuals working for public employers that opt out of Social Security but offer a 401k and pension. What should we consider if we will likely not pull any benefits from Social Security or qualify for the program's protections if we become disabled? Okay, so two things. When we are talking about the 15%, and that's the number that you've heard me mention many times, that people should be saving on a regular basis in order to have about 85% of their pre-retirement income in retirement, that assumes Social Security is there. It doesn't count on a pension. So many of these public sector workers have a pension instead of Social Security. And assuming that what you will receive from that pension is pretty equivalent to what you would have received from Social Security, the 15% for the long term will work. As far as disability is concerned, however, I would talk to your employer about what protections are in place should you become disabled? Is there a short or long-term disability policy? How quickly will that kick in? And try to figure out how much cash you would have to have on hand to whether a disability until the time the coverage kicks in. It would be surprising to me if there was nothing. And when you say 15%, that's including retirement, not just retirement? Exactly. Okay. And it's including matching dollars from your employer. Mm. And normally, if you've got Social Security and a 401k and a pension, you can reduce that 15% by whatever the pension will cover because it's that's the way the numbers work. But in this case, I would say the pension and Social Security are probably a trade-off. Pensions are so great. And Social Security is a pension, which a lot of people don't understand. It's all lifetime income. We're just so many people are pessimistic about Social Security, at least I know from my generation. I know. I know. People people are. But the Social Security Trust Fund is not going to run out of money by, I, I believe the most recent figure is 2034. When we talk about the event that will hit in 2034, if nothing changes, it is the 
trust fund not having the ability to fully fund its obligations. It doesn't mean you'll get nothing. It means you'll get about 79% of what was promised. I am more optimistic than you that the government will take the necessary steps to fulfill its promises because I think if it doesn't, there will be bedlam. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. So I'm I'm holding on for no bedlam. No bedlam. <laughs> no bedlam. All right. We'll do one more from Corinne, who turned 61 in January. She's wondering how to go about getting her 401k money from past employers. And it sounds like she's looking for the best approach and then what to do when she has it. So the easiest approach is to let a financial institution do the work for you. (laughs) So you could go to any large financial institution. The one that houses your current 401k is probably a good place to start because then you'll have everything in one place. But um, basically you tell them you want to roll over the money that is in those old 401ks into an IRA. And they will take it from there. They will do the work of rounding up those assets. Largely, you're going to have to sign some pieces of paper. You're going to have to give permission. But they will help you bring the money into their coffers. And at that point, then you have to manage it. And the way I would manage it is by looking at your overall holdings. You shouldn't be managing each individual 401k or IRA as a separate pool of money. You should have one asset allocation strategy that governs the entire pot and basically directs how much risk you're taking versus how much risk you're taking off and telling you You want X percent in stocks and bonds and cash or by putting it all into a cohesive target date fund that does it for you. Amazing. Thank you, Jean. Thank you so much, Kelly. And it's that time of year again. Hurricane season has begun. That's what we're talking about in today's Thrive segment. We are looking for a near or above normal hurricane season this year with one or four major hurricanes likely to hit. That's according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And that means you should probably check up on your coverage and consider buying some coverage if you are one of the 28 million Americans who live in a flood zone. Standard homeowners insurance policies typically do not cover damage from floodwaters, from rising tides or flash floods or overflowing streams. You actually have to buy a separate flood policy to get flood coverage. And you should know Floods can even hit in non-coastal areas. According to the National Flood Insurance Program, about one-fifth of all claims in recent years have been paid out in areas that are considered low risk. The cost of coverage depends on the level of risk where you are, but even in high-risk areas, there are ways to curb your expenses. You can elevate equipment like heat pumps and power outlets and natural gas lines or elevate even the entire home. And that can bring down your premium by about 60%, according to the folks at FEMA, which is the Federal Emergency Management Agency. FEMA also, by the way, offers grants to help 
cover the cost of elevating houses, but all of that process can take some time. So focus on the equipment first and don't delay if you plan on filing an application for flood insurance. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thank you to Hannah Shank and Elizabeth Wallace for the great conversation. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Please leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We also want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We record this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Track Tribe, and our show comes to you through PRX. Join us next week. We'll be back with former head of Telemundo, Nellie Galan. She is the author of Self Made, and she is a wow of a woman. We will talk soon. 